0: Well, um, we are uh, back here in our sermon series, looking at the book of Genesis. Uh, and if you are if you are visiting with us this morning, you have a treat in that <clears throat> you get to be part of the uh, longest passage we've addressed since we started our sermon series, looking at the book of Genesis. Um, as those that have been here would be able to tell you we 've we actually we haven 't actually been um moving through Genesis at a breakneck speed <laughs> um, but here we come to a uh passage uh that 's quite extensive, and just to put you at ease uh, i 'm actually not going to read every single verse okay so um but we 're going to cover. From halfway in chapter four to the end of chapter five. Okay, Uh, I might actually speed up as I'm reading. Uh, A lot of this are uh, very interesting names. You may, if you're a young parent here, you might want to take notes of possible uh, future names uh, for your own kids. Um, You might even want to consider changing uh, legally um, your name this morning. Um, nevertheless, here we are, uh, chapter four, starting in verse 17. And again, I'll be going th- all the way through the end of verse of chapter fift- uh, five. This is God's holy word. Now Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. When he built a city, he called the name of the city after the name of his son, Enoch. Enoch was born Erod, and Erod fathered Mahushael, and Mahushael fathered Methushael, and Methushael fathered Lamech. And Lamech took two wives. The name of the one was Ada, the name of the other Zillah. And And Ada bore Jabal. He was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. His brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and light and pipe. Zillah also bore Tubal-Cain. He was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron. And the sister of Tubal-Cain was Nama. Verse 23, Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice. You wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. And Adam knew his wife again, and she bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. And at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord, Yahweh. Yahweh. Verse 1, chapter 5, this is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Verse 9, when Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Kenan. Verse 12, when Kenan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Verse 15, when Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he fathered Jared. Verse 18, when Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Verse 21, when Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. And Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Verse 28, when Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, out of the ground that the Lord has cursed... This one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. And Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is God's holy word. Will you pray with me? Father, we pray now that even in a text with so many unfamiliar names, we pray that you might still speak to us, as this also is part of your holy scripture, which is inspired for teaching, for reproof, for admonishment, for encouragement, for building us up as your people. So would you now, even here, even now, speak to us, for your servants are listening, and it's you we need to hear from. We pray these things for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, this morning, I'm actually going to break uh, public speaking rule 101 and not actually start the sermon with an introduction. <laughs> we're going to kind of jump right in, and we're basically picking up from where we left, left off last week. Okay? So no introduction, breaking the rule. We're going to move ahead. Last week... We saw Cain double down in his unwillingness to come clean, humble himself, and repent after his murder. And then he settled further east of Eden, and there he found a wife, and he built a city. Immediately, we have questions. Where did his wife come from? (laughs) And for a city, don't you need to have other people? Now, this is a brief hermeneutical exercise and lesson, okay? (laughs) When the biblical authors are writing, they are very seldom concerned with providing details simply for the sake of providing details. They're generally writing very sparsely, and often there are gaps because they have a very specific purpose in mind as to why they are writing. Take, for instance, when Jesus was born, we know absolutely nothing between after he was in the temple on the eighth day and when he was 12 years old. Big gap. What was happening? No idea. The Bible doesn't tell us. It wasn't the point. <laughs> so the details aren't there. They apparently don't matter to the priority of the author of the text. Now, the reality of that is is this can be frustrating to us modern 21st century people, can't it? (laughs) Where if we don't have a detailed account, somehow in our minds we sense or are afraid that perhaps the truth or the historicity of the Scripture text is somehow compromised. But what that's doing is putting a modern-day, 21st-century expectation on an ancient Near Eastern text, (laughs) which actually undermines the way the authority of Scripture even works. And Yet, often theologians feel they must go out of their way in what they believe to be a defense of Scripture, but often are delving into speculation in the process. And it's a bad idea, (laughs) and it's actually unnecessary. It actually, again, demonstrates a misunderstanding of how Scripture even works at all. Nevertheless, I will bite and just for a moment, speculate. (laughs) But again, this is pure speculation, and at the end of the day, it is unnecessary and doesn't matter for the sake of the text. But consider this, if Adam lived to be 900 years or over 900 years, which the text tells us, and assuming that he and Eve would have likely had a lot of children, even those that might not be recorded in Scripture, then, and and logically, if every human being came from the same parents, there had to be an intermarrying for a period of time at the beginning, And that means, all of that means that you could easily have a sufficient amount of people in 900 years for a city. Certainly not the size of New York. Certainly not even the size of Palm Bay. But the author could not have possibly imagined a city that big in his day. Rather, a city at this time is simply a designation of a gathering of people that are likely enclosed with a fortified wall and where there are enough people to begin to engage in collaboration and commerce. A place where people are even starting to specialize in various fields and professions. And that's exactly what we have here. We start to see the city's food source solidified through Jabal. Who, according to verse 20 of chapter 4, was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock? There's your food source. You have the music and the arts initiated through Jubal, who, according to verse 21, was the father of all who play the lyre and pipe, musicians. You even have metallurgy started through Tubal Cain, who was the forger of all instruments of bronze and iron, verse 22. And despite this all coming from the vision and hand and lineage of Cain, who is here because of the consequences of murdering his brother, this is all a very positive furthering of the cultural mandate given to our first parents to be God's vice regents in the world that he made. One writer speaks of this building of a city as a kind of cultural gardening. And that reinforces once again that all humans, all humans, believers and unbelievers alike who are created in the image of one God can't help but reflect their creator in at least some way in how they carry out the cultural mandate whether they give credit to God or not. In other words, it's not only Christians who have a monopoly on reflecting the goodness and creativity of God. And furthermore, this is to be celebrated. In fact, thus far in the text, thus far, there's nothing negative noted at all about this commerce, about this collaboration, about this city. And it shouldn't be surprising to us that the Bible doesn't have a negative condemning posture towards the collaboration among image bearers in a city. This is where the whole creation project was heading. In fact, at the end of Revelation, it's a city that John sees coming down from heaven where all God's people are going to dwell together in his presence for all eternity. Even when God's people, if you recall, were in exile in Babylon of all places, (laughs) while they were under the regime of a foreign power who did not at all share any kind of faith in Yahweh. Do you remember what God told his people through his prophet Jeremiah in chapter 29, verse 7? There he says, "'Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile, and pray to the Lord Yahweh on its behalf.'" For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. God doesn't say speak out and wholesale condemn the city, but to seek and to pray for its very welfare. When was the last time, let me ask you this, when was the last time you prayed specifically for the welfare of Palm Bay? Hopefully you did this last week if you were following along in the Lenten prayer guide. There were encouragements to pray for very specific aspects of your city. And all of this is why the Reformed Dutch theologian Abraham Kuyper once said, there is not a thumbs width in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, (laughs) my. This is My, all of it, playing the lyre and pipe and acoustic and electric guitars, crafting tools out of bronze and iron, and even creating software technology, medicine, education, engineering. Jesus says, it's all my, under my lordship. And it's why the reformers went out of their way, especially Martin Luther, to oppose the sacred secular dichotomy that the church had so heavily bought into by the 16th century. Where the idea that the clergy's work, the pastor's work, that was the real work, the spiritual work. And those that worked in the ministry were more special to God than the farmer who reflects God's image while working in the field. And it's thinking that crept into the church actually from Greek philosophy that says the spiritual world is what really matters and the physical world is a lesser order and actually bad. (laughs) And the whole goal is to get out of the physical world and into a solely spiritual realm. But it's a thinking that the Bible and especially Genesis 1 and 2 and even Revelation and throughout the rest of Scripture would call (laughs) heresy, It's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 10, whatever you do, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink or fish or hunt or work in an office or are retired, whether you're married, whether you are raising children, whether you are single, whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Now, having said all of that, we are not saying that there won't be issues in the city. (laughs) After all, whenever you get a bunch of sinful human beings together, there's going to be issues. (laughs) Just as there are good and wonderful image-bearing happening and flourishing as God's image-bearers gather together with a common cultural pursuit in this Cain's city that I'm calling Enoch town, was named after his son Enoch, there is also, sadly, an extension and furthering of sin and evil and injustice. We see, for instance, the introduction of polygamy for the very first time in verse 19. Something will come up again and again in Genesis, but is never portrayed in a good light and will often lead to dire consequences and pain and sorrow sorrow. But that's just the beginning of Lamech's unjust actions. In verses 23 and 24, Lamech says this to his wives, Ada and Zillah, hear my voice, you wives of Lamech, listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. This is Lamech's response to being simply crossed by another human being. An ancient Near Eastern world equivalent of being cut off in traffic during rush hour on Palm Bay Road. And so we see that the introduction of violence last week with Cain is now magnified and multiplied in his great-grandson, Lamech. But furthermore, Lamech is even proud and boasting about his violence, about his bitterness, about being the sole arbiter of retribution. In Lamech's economy, there will be no possibility or consideration of forgiveness whatsoever. And as much as Lamech's violence stands out to us today, The truth is, that same root of bitterness that has fully bloomed in Lamech's life and in his boasting, honestly, if we're honest with ourselves, still finds its way into our hearts today. When you and I are wronged, when we are hurt, when we are criticized, when our high opinion of ourselves is threatened... You and I may not initially, hopefully, (laughs) lash out and murder our accuser and go on boasting about it, but nevertheless, that same bitterness and desire for revenge still shows up, at least in acorn form, in our hearts today, even if not in a full-blooming tree like in the life of Lamech. It's why Jesus says, if you have my followers, my disciple, if you have hatred in your heart for another human being, you have already committed a type of murder in that you are interacting with that individual as if you wished they were dead. That's what's happening in our heart. So what's going on here in Genesis 4? Is there an explanation for why evil has progressed this much? Is there anything that could deter this diabolical descent inside the human heart? Perhaps there's something missing. The author continues. Verse 25, And Adam knew his wife again. and She bore a son and called his name Seth. For she said, God has appointed for me another offspring instead of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. At that time people began to call upon the name of the Lord. What had Cain done? What was he most concerned about? What was motivating him to build that Enoch town? (laughs) And Lamech, what was his motivation for such violent reactions to his reputation being tarnished, for being crossed by another human being? They wanted what you and I want left to our sinful, fallen selves, to be thought more highly of by others, to make a name for ourselves, to have our name recognized, to be somebody, to be right, and to make sure other know, others know that we are right and that therefore they are wrong. But in the midst of all of this brokenness that we see Lamech living out, we actually see some great faith and hope being birthed. Again, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. What a beautiful and hopeful observation at this point in the narrative. As short And sweet as it is, (laughs) in the midst of all of these other crazy names that are unfamiliar to us, what a beautiful statement. After the beauty and wonder of all that has happened in Genesis 1 and 2, and the trajectory that God, our creator, sets our first parents on from the very beginning, we then have this hellish introduction to humanity's rebellion against this world's good creator in chapter 3, and a descent or even free fall into moral chaos and anarchy in chapter 4. It's all going in the wrong direction. But then, at that time, people began to call on the name of the Lord. Whereas we saw possible, subtle glimpses of faithful responses by our first parents after their first rebellious act, there's nothing subtle here in this statement. We have a full-blown, wonderful statement of faith. When people get together, when human beings get together, whether it's in Cane City, whether it's in New York, whether it's in Palm Bay, there is some beautiful collaboration that can happen collectively between image bearers, but it can't save them from themselves. It can't save us from the way we're bent within all of us as descendants of the first human couple, and it can't save us from the ways we see others, not as Collaborators in this life as fellow human image bearers, but rather as competitors. What is necessary, therefore, is to relinquish our need for our name and for our standing among others to be exalted. What's necessary is a pursuit of and calling upon a name that is greater and more worthy of being fully and wholly esteemed and praised and recognized in our own name and our own reputation the author is essentially telling us there will now be a line drawn in the sand. There will now be two types of cities, so to speak. (laughs) There will be those that make it their life pursuit to make a name for themselves and those who humbly pursue the honoring of the name of Yahweh that recognize the human need to praise and worship his name alone. And so in the midst of the city, in, the, in all the pursuit of creativity, in the arts and technology and science, there will now be those who intentionally seek to wholly reflect the image they bear in all that they do. So seeking after the exaltation of his name and not their own, there will now be an alternate city, an alternate community of those who live out the words of the shorter catechism. First question, that the chief end of Every single human being is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And we don't have time right now to point them all out, but did you notice any of the similarities or even matches between the names of the descendants of Cain in chapter 4 and the descendants of Seth in chapter 5? Enoch is in both lists. There's an Irad and a Jared. There's a Methuselah and there's a Methuselah. There are others. And again, this must be an intentional writing on part of the author to include an account to set up what, be, what could be called a tale of two cities. One city where people long to have their name called upon and another city where people call on the name of Yahweh. And my friends, at the end of the day... That is, in fact, what New City is called to be in the city of Palm Bay, a people calling on the name of the Lord in all that they do, in whatever they do, and then inviting others to join them and see how they may actually enjoy God forever in that process, starting now. That's what Jesus tells his followers in Matthew 5. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. A city on a hill, a different kind of city, a city within a city, that's new city. A community, a culture that both celebrates the goodness and wonder of the image bearers that reside and live here in Palm Bay, but also lives out in full view of those image bearers, what it looks like. To call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in all things and live under his reign as the one who says, all of this is mine. To proclaim in word and deed that true and full human flourishing can only happen when proper perspective and allegiance to Yahweh and to his son Jesus Christ is in place. Let your light so shine before Palm Bay that they see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. And we might add and even call on the name of Yahweh. And perhaps one of the most impactful ways, as we are coming to a close, one of the most impactful ways we can shine forth the goodness and the beauty of being Yahweh's redeemed people is in our posture towards those who do us wrong. We live currently in what I would call a Lamech-inspired cancel culture. Lamech was the original cancel culturist, and our world has inherited his posture. (laughs) You wrong me. I may not physically kill you like my great-great-great-uncle Lamech, but I can contribute to your societal death. <laughs> I can contribute to your commercial death, your business death, your political death. All of us, even we as Christians, can subconsciously get caught up in the cultural game of the Lamak inspired cancel culture. Now, there is certainly a time and place for retributive justice. There is certainly a time to call it injustice. But the disciple of Jesus of Nazareth has another redemptive tool in his or her missional arsenal, (laughs) in his or her pursuit of living out what it means to call on the name of the Lord. It's called forgiveness. (laughs) A tool that is far more effective, powerful, and transformation transformational than a Lamak inspired cancel cultural approach. Do you remember one time Peter wanted to know what the boundaries were on his responsibility in forgiving others? And he comes to Jesus with the question, how many times? <laughs> and no doubt Peter thought he was way ahead of the game and being bold and generous in suggesting perhaps seven times. <laughs> After all, that was way more than what the Religious leaders, lawyers, and scholars of his day required. But Jesus, in response, most certainly had Lamech in mind when he answered. Not seven. (laughs) I tell you, 77-fold. Or 70 times seven, depending on the translation. In other words, as if Jesus is saying, as my followers, I want your forgiveness to one another to be just as extensive as Lamech's vengeance was. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't like to forgive at all, much less 77 times. But the call to be an alternate community from the lamak inspired way as a type of daily taking up of our cross as a follower of Jesus. And it will not be easy. Forgiveness is never easy. And we don't have time to go into it today on this either, although I just want to quickly note there are misunderstandings of forgiveness. It's not what Jesus is talking about. For example, forgiveness is not in contention with justice. Often, forgiveness can't happen without justice. And forgiveness is not a call to simply ignore a wrong and move on. That's not forgiveness. But nevertheless, forgiveness is no doubt hard. In fact, it's humanly impossible. So how might it be possible? How might it be possible to be an alternate city in Palm Bay, where the world says, take no prisoners, get yours no matter the cost to other human beings, and engages in holistic condemnation and cancellation of those who don't get in line with its philosophy. And instead of responding in like mind, rather live as a forgiving community in a way that leads others to cry out and call on the name of the Lord as well. It's at the cross. It's at the cross where our Savior, where our Redeemer was wronged. Injustice to the uttermost. You would be hard-pressed to find a greater miscarriage of justice from a human perspective and an act of injustice against one individual in the history of human civilization. And yet, as he was dying on the cross, experiencing his own fracturing with his relationship with his father as he's crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all of that anguish, all of that cosmic injustice, do you remember what his prayer remained for those actually carrying out the evil deed? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Father, Forgive them. Jesus was showing others who bear the image of God with the most profound, beautiful, earth-shattering response one could give in a time of and in receipt of cosmic injustice. And my friends, if you are here this morning, counted among those who by faith do in fact call on the name of the Lord, (laughs) you have been a direct recipient of not eternal condemnation and cancellation, which we certainly deserve, but forgiveness. Forgiveness. Jesus cried out on your behalf, (laughs) on my behalf. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He might say today, Father, forgive them. They still don't know what they're doing. And yet his blood was shed that all of our sins might be atoned for, past, present, and future. Forgiveness remains ours in Jesus Christ. One day we will be reunited with Him for all eternity. Enjoy full communion once again with Him. Let's pray, Heavenly Father. We uh, we are we stand amazed when we're really honest with ourselves when we fully understand and appreciate and are moved by the ways we blow it, the ways we mess up, the way we hurt each other, the way we hurt our spouse, our children, our parents, our neighbor, our coworkers. The fact that you, Jesus, have, have cried out, and not simply cried out, but you actually made a way for it to be possible for us to be forgiven, even of the worst possible thing in our own lives. Jesus, we are amazed. Jesus, I pray that a reminder of the depth of your forgiveness to us might be the very fuel that encourages us and it motivates us to be an alternate city, to be an alternate community here in Palm Bay In a way to, to live out that others, our neighbors, our coworkers, those around us might also be. a beautiful life of what it looks like to call on the name of the Lord, to live in such a way where he is glorified in all things and therefore enjoyed for all eternity. Jesus, may that reality be so palpable in our hearts, even this week, as we will go back into the world and we will def- deal with difficult people. <laughs> may we be reminded of the great forgiveness we have by your Spirit, be able to offer the extensive forgiveness, Jesus, that you call your own disciples to. We pray for your sake. Amen.